we can actually grow a blood vessel in an organ chamber. And that blood vessel then can be grown to a certain size and length. It can be taken off the shelf, right? So it's readily available. And then it can be sewn in and be sort of integrated or adopted by the recipient. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome back retired Air Force Colonel Dr. Todd Rasmussen to War Docs. Dr. Rasmussen is a vascular surgeon who has deployed multiple times to combat zones and has held numerous leadership and research positions in military medicine before retiring and joining the Mayo Clinic Department of Surgery. You can learn more about his bio on wardoxpodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear about the evolution of vascular care on the battlefield and how military medicine has utilized lessons learned to improve trauma care in the civilian sector. Dr. Rasmussen also describes the opportunities for advancement in vascular techniques and technology that will be critical to support combat casualties and save lives in wars of the future. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Air Force Colonel, Dr. Todd Rasmussen to War Docs. Todd, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you, you two, for hosting me, and I'm excited to be part of the program today. One of the things that I think is important to understand is the evolution of vascular care that we as vascular surgeons do surgery on blood vessels. How would you describe the military preparations and experience in vascular surgery and military surgery leading up to the current wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? It's an important perspective to keep in mind, and I think we can overlook that occasionally. What led up to our current approach to vascular injury on the battlefield, and it dates back 100 years, right, to efforts to manage vascular injury in World War I, some, but certainly in World War II, with recognition of the unique nature of vascular injury, mostly in the extremities, that was cataloged by DeBakey and Simeone who cataloged rates of vascular injury, management techniques of vascular injury during the Second World War. And at that time, there were limited ways to really manage a broken blood vessel in a wartime environment. By and large, the management was ligation, just to stop the bleeding, which makes sense. Obviously, the extremity tourniquet predates all of this by a few hundred years. But during the Second World War, although there was surgical capability that was evolving at that time, it was pretty limited with regards to vascular repair. And coming out of that time period, it was pretty much dogma, if not even written policy from the military, that vascular injury on the battlefield should just be ligated. And then less than a decade later in the Korean War, Frank Spencer, who was a Marine surgeon, whose time during the Korean War was cataloged in the iconic TV series MASH, Frank Spencer challenged that dogma and started to say, should we be able to fix extremity vascular injury? Because then surgical techniques had progressed a little bit. And at that time, they began using cadaveric arterial homograph. Basically, if there'd been a deceased soldier, they would use a extremity blood vessel, cut it out of either the dead or amputated extremity and use it as a conduit to fix blood vessels in someone who was living. That was on a limited basis for sure, but I think that was the sort of the nascent Frank Spencer and the likes of Carl Hughes 
after that, an army surgeon sort of began to recognize what was possible in repairing vascular injury. That was all facilitated by sort of the emergence of rapid medical evacuation with helicopter, medevac, basically, or dust-off began, I think, sort of was more mainstream during the Korean War. And then that was advanced much further a decade later by Norm Rich and many of our predecessors and mentors who operated in the Vietnam War, who then really took that wholesale and said, well, we don't need arterial homograph from dead or amputated limbs. By that time, the use of saphenous vein as a conduit had been sort of pioneered in the civilian vascular surgery practice and now was used to repair vascular trauma by the likes of Norm Rich and others during the Vietnam War. Sort of that evolution came and I think is really part of where we are today. And then I think the biggest, one of the biggest next sort of transformations was the development of endovascular capabilities, whether that's catheter-based balloons, stent grafts, for example to treat certain forms of vascular injury, or even the use of intravascular shunts, temporary vascular shunts, which really aren't an endovascular technology, but those things really came along in the late 80s and endovascular techniques in the 90s and early 2000s. So all of those things, I think that history was really brought to bear during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think because of the longevity of those two wars, were really put to use and studied to good effect. That's sort of my perspective on the history of how that's all evolved over the last hundred years. So it's a pretty significant period of time between the Vietnam War and the current or most recent engagements in Iraq and Afghanistan. When the war started and we started seeing some significant injuries, how much change initially was there from how we treated vascular injuries in Vietnam to what we were doing early in Afghanistan and Iraq. Were we using those endovascular techniques or was it still kind of, hey, we're going to ligate and try and get them out of here? I would say that the combat casualty care machine was a little bit rusty at the beginning of the Afghanistan war, meaning that we didn't really know. We certainly knew that for the first time now, the military had vascular trained surgeons. Remember in the Vietnam War, there weren't vascular surgeons. They were basically general surgeons who did everything. But now in the beginning of Afghanistan, for the first time, we had fellowship trained, if you will, a whole cadre of fellowship trained vascular surgeons. And so it's not that vascular repair was new or rusty. It's just that doing it downrange in austere environments, in multiple casualty events, that was what was sort of rusty. I think that came up to speed really quickly enabled by the joint trauma system, its emergence and trying to put the right surgeons in the right place and get the right patient to the right place for the right treatment at the right time. I mean, those things came together pretty quickly early in the Afghanistan war. And I think initially to your question, I think our techniques were hemorrhage control, use of tourniquets to save life, but then also it wasn't necessarily life over limb, it was life and limb. Remember that the management of vascular injury is only really enabled by the effectiveness of resuscitation. So I think that what came in parallel that was pretty unique was the evolution of damage control resuscitation, which allowed us then to sort of fix and the patients survived who otherwise wouldn't have survived to have their vascular injuries repaired. So you've had a fair amount of experience with these wars because you finished your training in 2001 and then retired in 2021. So your military career as a vascular surgeon actually spanned the vast majority of the wars. What would you say are the most significant contributions to battlefield care that resulted from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? 
It's interesting, the biggest advances related to vascular injury management really, as I said before, relate to resuscitation, hemorrhage control and resuscitation, because as we know, you can't fix a blood vessel in a patient who doesn't make it. And so I think the evolution of what used to be crystalloid-based resuscitation to blood product component-based resuscitation in certain ratios, and then to the evolution of whole blood. That fairly rapid transformation of how we resuscitated patients, I think, was a major advance, if not maybe the major advance in care. And that's not so much in vascular injury, it's resuscitation, but that's a big deal. I think the re-recognition of the effectiveness of extremity tourniquets was a big deal. As I mentioned, extremity tourniquets probably dates back 300 years. So it's not a new concept, but I think the military's re-engineering and then training broadly through the tactical combat casualty care or TCCC programs, the use of tourniquets saved thousands of lives and probably allowed a good number of those service members who were saved to have their vascular injuries repaired. Those are people who may have died in previous wars. So I think re-engineering, retraining of tourniquets, evolution of damage control resuscitation. I think vascular-specific innovations or advances, I think the recognition of and addressing the ischemic threshold of the limb, recognizing that time is tissue in the limb as well. It's not just time is tissue in the brain or the heart. There's also an ischemic threshold of the limb and use of temporary vascular shunts and forward positioning of surgical assets to try to reperfuse the ischemic limb, I think is a big advance. And then I think at the tail end and in a more niche sort of perspective is endovascular technologies, the use of endovascular balloons or stents or stent grafts. I say niche because those techniques are applicable to a select few types of vascular injuries, but certainly in those vascular injuries, the availability and use of endovascular technologies can be absolutely life-saving and offer a significant margin of less morbidity. So those are the things that I think come to mind with regards to the most significant advances. How would you describe the vascular injury rates and patterns from the war in Afghanistan versus the war in Iraq, and even compare them to previous conflicts in Vietnam, Korea, World War II. As I mentioned, Debeke and Simeon did begin to catalog vascular injury rates during World War II. And the rates is challenging and probably relatively rudimentary as their quote-unquote statistics may have been. They were trying. They cataloged rates of vascular injury of 1% or 2%, for example, during the World War II. Similarly, Frank Spencer and Carl Hughes and others during the Korean War logged and recorded vascular injury rates of 1% or 2% of all U.S. service members who were injured in combat. The rates during Vietnam War were similarly about 2 maybe 3%. You have to give those giants on whose shoulders we stand credit for trying to making efforts to record those rates, sort of the epidemiology of vascular injury in those times. Especially in many of those were during a conscript force. You didn't really have a professional medical force of volunteer surgeons and medics. They worked amidst the draft, right? So the commitment to that sort of academic and structured approach to studying what they were experiencing was probably more challenging than it was in Iraq and Afghanistan. If anything, we're blessed to work in a volunteer professional force. The rates of vascular injury in Iraq and Afghanistan were recorded to be probably around 12 to 15 percent. 
maybe as high as one in five injured service members had some form of vascular injury. They were basically similar between the theaters of war. We looked at that and published on that. But certainly the rates we often say are as much as five times, maybe seven times higher than the rates of vascular injury that were cataloged in previous wars. And so when we talk about vascular injuries, can you describe to us exactly what it is that would be defined as a vascular injury that would be in that 12 to 20% range? Major vascular injuries would be recorded injury of a major blood vessel, an axial vessel, artery. These are really arterial injuries in the extremities or cervical region or junctional regions. The lower extremity would be a femoral artery, a popliteal artery, or a tibial artery. And the arm would be a brachial or forearm artery, and the neck, for example, a carotid. The junctional areas, of course, are the axillosubclavian arteries or veins, arteries in this case, or in the lower portion of the torso, that junctional region is really the iliac vessels or the femorals. Torsovascular injury, for example, to a mesenteric vessel or the aorta or renal artery, for example, those are uncommon, probably for a couple of reasons. I think during war, those areas are less exposed because of the use of body armor in many cases. So the torso is relatively protected and probably they're more lethal. So if there is a major torso vascular injury, then those patients are less likely to survive to have their injuries recorded. But the rates of, let's say, 10 to 20% of vascular injury in Iraq and Afghanistan, which are real, those rates include the major axial vessels, including the forearm and leg, so tibials and forearm arteries that I mentioned. You mentioned before the use of shunts. For vascular injuries, how did the use of shunts evolve from early in the war to later in the war? And what were the indications? Was it just axillary things or was it torso injuries where shunts were utilized? So temporary vascular shunts, just for those who aren't familiar with them, to put it simply, they're small plastic tubes, which are inserted into a severed vessel, which is occluded. They basically are meant to be temporary rerouting of flow across the injured segment. When we say temporary vascular shunts, the temporary means that they should be in for an hour or two. During that hour or two, they route flow to the distal portion of the limb most of the time. And then when the patient gets to a more controlled setting or a more well-resourced casualty care echelon, then the shunt is removed and formal vascular repair is performed. So Temporary vascular shunts have been used for decades, probably 60, 70 years for cardiovascular surgery. So elective operations, for example, on the carotid artery. And I think they're used during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. This was the first wholesale use of temporary vascular shunts in a wartime setting. So initially, they were used primarily for extremity vascular injuries. 80 to 90% of shunts were probably placed in the upper or lower extremity arterial position. What we learned was that the temporary vascular shunt, the time window in which they can be useful, probably the sweet spot is between one and four, maybe five hours, and then they need to be removed. Remember, they're plastic tubes, so clot will form in them after five or six hours for sure, if you're not careful. Initially, they were used without much data to back up what we were doing, frankly. I mean, they were empirically useful. We knew that. We could make observations that putting a shunt in was better than leaving the tourniquet up, for example, because you could have flow for that intervening few hours. But how long you could use the shunt, how long you could leave it in, did it need anticoagulation? What vessels did it work in? Which vessels did it not work in? I think initially we just didn't know that. 
And then kind of to your question, I think how that evolved was because of the duration of the wars, the sustained volume of injuries and experience, we refined the use of temporary vascular shunts to know which vessels they're best used in, how long they can be used, which shunts are best, how to and how not to use them. So I think that their use is a significant advance. It's an example of, uh, I think, a significant advance in vascular injury management. I think you've pointed out several of the big picture items that I try to convey to the general surgery residents in their training is that we as military surgeons are trying to restore normal physiology as quickly as we can. And whether that's stopping hemorrhage by putting on a tourniquet or whether it's putting in a shunt so that the blood flow is now flowing to the leg or fixing the hematologic system where you've bled out a liter of blood and now you need another liter of blood. Take us through an example, because there may be a lot of people listening here that say, I kind of understand what a shunt is. It's a plastic tube to route blood flow, but then what? Can you take us through just a quick example so people know exactly what we're talking about here? Let's say there's a service member who either takes a fragment from an IED or a gunshot wound through the femoral artery in the thigh or around the knee. The options at that point are to put on a tourniquet, which is likely to happen, which will stop hemorrhage and save that patient's life. That's goal number one. But part and parcel of putting on the tourniquet is now there's no blood flow below the tourniquet. And so the options now is that injured service member is taken to an FST. The options are to leave that tourniquet on and medevac the injured service member to a roll three. And if that's the case, then that tourniquet's going to be on two, three, four hours, maybe longer right? Because of the unpredictable nature of medical evacuation in those situations. The alternative is that the FST, the temporary vascular shunt can be used. And in that case, then during an operation under general anesthesia, the tourniquet is removed, the vascular injury, the severed artery is explored, and a shunt is placed across the injured segment to restore flow from proximal to distal through the tube. And now all of a sudden that injured service member has reperfusion of the limb at one or two hours. The shunt is sort of sewn in place. It's put in quickly. It's a damage control maneuver. And then that service member is medevaced with the shunt in place to the echelon three or roll three hospital with a perfused leg, which then saves the muscle and the nerve and the function of that leg. It's sort of the opposite of having the tourniquet during that intervening two or three or four hours. And then at the Echelon 3 hospital, the patient undergoes another operation where the shunt is removed and the blood vessels formally repaired. So the use of temporary vascular shunts, I think, really reduced ischemic time in injured extremities, ischemic time being time without any blood flow. Tourniquets, I think, as we mentioned already, saved lives, but the challenge is left in place for three or four or five hours. The tourniquet saved the life, but may result in limb loss. And shunts and forward positioning of surgical expertise, I think, offered a very, very viable and important alternative during the wars. So someone makes it to the roll three with a shunt in place. Take the audience through what then happens. What does the vascular surgeon or the specialty surgeon do at the next level of care to now take out the shunt? Because you said it's only good for four hours. Yeah. So then the injured service member undergoes a second operation. Let's say they underwent the first operation at the FST to remove the tourniquet, to restore flow using the shunt into the leg. At the roll three facility now, they undergo a second operation. That injury in the thigh, let's say it's the fragment injury to the thigh, the thigh wound is re-explored. 
the shunt is identified, the shunt is now under a controlled operation in a more well-resourced situation. We're at an echelon three now, not at an FST. Under a more well-resourced scenario, the shunt is in a controlled manner removed. The blood vessel that has been bridged is now cleaned up, if you will, and then it's repaired. It's either put back together or a piece of saphenous vein is used to bridge and sewn in for what we'd call a definitive vascular repair, permanently restoring flow then to the leg below the injury. And often those repeat operations are needed. Remember, these are dirty wounds. You'd say, why would you do two operations? Isn't that a lot? The fact of the matter is these wounds were so contaminated that they often required repeated debridement anyway. So the sequence of first operation at a roll two or a forward surgical team followed hours later by a second operation at the echelon three, that's commonplace and really was required to sort of manage the contaminated wounds that we were encountering. And the saphenous vein for the audience is the long vein that runs down the inner part of the thigh and I think we take them from the other leg. What are the options though? We have a vein in the leg. What are the options and what should be the options? You always have to remember ligation is an option. I mean, if the patient's doing poorly, limb salvage, I think the adage of life over limb that stemmed from World War II, Korean, or even the Vietnam War, the artery can be ligated and then amputation performed. We have to keep that in mind that limb salvage is not indicated in all scenarios because you may not have the time or the patient may have other life-threatening injuries to the torso or head. The other options to fix it if you don't have saphenous vein would be using some sort of prosthetic like Dacron, believe it or not, it's a sort of a polyester material or Gore-Tex, PTFE, expanded polytetrafluoroethylene, EPTFE. Those other conduits, the synthetic conduits we use routinely in cardiovascular surgery for age-related conditions back home. If we fix an aortic aneurysm, for example, electively, we frequently use a Dacron graft. So A lot of what we'd use to fix vascular injury downrange came from our experience managing vascular disease in mostly elderly folks and our civilian practices. So clearly, if you could, the best way to replace the injured vessel would be with an actual human vessel, particularly maybe from the patient himself, and the same type of vessel, like an artery for an artery. Where are we going with kind of biologic conduits? And what is the thinking about the future in replacing those Dacron and PTFE conduits with something that's more biologic? The advantage of the prosthetic materials is they are, as we call them, off the shelf. You can open up a package and get a conduit or a material that you can use to bridge the gap across the broken blood vessel. And it's off the shelf. It's quick right? And it's a uniform size, for example. You can get one that's four millimeters or six millimeters, a Dacron graft, for example. The disadvantage of the synthetic grafts, as you may be alluding to, is that they are prone to infection. They are synthetic. In wartime injuries, often Dacron or Gore-Tex PTFE grafts are contraindicated because they will become infected by the contaminated wartime injury. That's why we like to use the patient's own saphenous vein, if possible, their own vein from the other leg, as Wayne mentioned. I think the future is going to be, well, how do we construct a combination, a vessel or conduit with the features of one's own blood vessel with the convenience of an off-the-shelf product? And I think these days, regenerative medicine technologies 
are allowing us to basically grow a blood vessel in an organ chamber or a bioreactor where we start from vascular smooth muscle cells taken from an organ donor. And we have technologies now, thanks to the DOD's medical research program and innovative civilian scientists and researchers in industry now, we can actually grow a blood vessel in an organ chamber. And that blood vessel then can be grown to a certain size and length. It can be taken off the shelf, right? So it's readily available. And then it can be sewn in and be sort of integrated or adopted by the recipient. That's a few years off, but we're working with the Food and Drug Administration now to use that type of product here in the States. So I think that's the future is basically growing a blood vessel and having those certain sizes and lengths and having them ready off the shelf. Those then would have the biologic attributes to resist infection, to improve patency or flow, and they would not need us to take time to take a vein from the patient. You were the first person in the DOD to actually implant one of these human acellular grafts, and you actually paved the way for Brandon Proper, Dan Scott, and I to do one for trauma at BAMSI. And so I think you should be commended on that. I'd like to transition, though. We had talked about endovascular surgery, and for our audience to understand that, endovascular surgery is the minimally invasive approach to blood vessel disease by vascular surgeons. Typically, you access a blood vessel at a distant site like the femoral artery in the groin, and then you treat something remotely. The battlefield does have endovascular technology at the ready currently, and that's with resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta, otherwise known as REBOA. Can you tell us a little about the history of that and then how that was able to be brought into battlefield care? I think trying to explain endovascular approaches, that remember endovascular means working from within the blood vessel and often from a remote location. So we enter the vasculature from a remote location, remote from the injury, for example, and we thread up miniaturized basically catheters through the blood vessel, most of the time using x-ray guidance or fluoroscopy. And we can work from inside the blood vessel, thereby obviating the need for big incisions, right? So that if you can seal the blood vessel, for example, with a stent from within, let's say there's a hole in the aorta, the simplest sort of scenario, an injured aorta with a hole, and one can seal that hole from within, then you don't have to make a big incision to then dissect out the aorta and fix it, for example, with a big major operation. So endovascular technologies, sometimes we call them catheter-based technologies, meaning we work with catheters, miniaturized catheters. They offer obvious benefit for certain conditions in the civilian sector. So coronary artery disease, aortic aneurysms, blockage disease from atherosclerosis. We knew that endovascular in the 1990s and early 2000s that these technologies were providing tremendous benefit to elderly patients in the U.S. with vascular disease. What happened during the wars was we said, well, of those technologies, do any of them apply to trauma and injury? Instead of managing coronary artery disease with an endovascular technology, could we potentially manage a wartime vascular injury using that technology? And that's sort of how that endovascular technology revolution that was happening in the civilian sector and that we all saw in our civilian training programs that necessarily or obviously translated to certain injury patterns we are seeing downrange. Not all of them, but certain injury patterns. One of the endovascular approaches is occluding the descending thoracic aorta with a balloon 
from inside, from a very small puncture at the top of the leg. And instead of cutting open the chest and reaching in and pushing the lung aside and clamping the aorta, could we use a balloon that's inserted through a miniature puncture in the leg or groin to give that same function, meaning occluding the descending thoracic aorta in scenarios of severe stage four hemorrhagic shock that provides afterload and perfusion to the coronaries and the brain. It can really be life-sustaining for a period of time and prevent the onset of a terminal dysrhythmia and death. We drew from our experience with these endovascular technologies to treat age-related disease in the civilian sector, and we began to take aspects of those technologies and apply them to wartime injury, and Reboa is one of them. But also, along with Reboa's use of covered stents or stent grafts to seal a broken blood vessel in the chest, for example, or using coils or plugs to stop bleeding from within the blood vessel instead of having to do a big operation. So I think the translation of the technology from the civilian sector into the wartime setting, in a way, was natural. The other thing I would point out, and I think it's often overlooked, is, and I mentioned it before, this was really the first large-scale wars where we had vascular and endovascular trained surgeons. So not only did we have the technologies But we had surgeons who were used to using these endovascular technologies, and they all got deployed into two theaters of war with a lot of casualties over 10 years, right? So it's not maybe altogether surprising putting those factors together, sort of the convergence of those factors that things like Reboa and use of covered stents and coils for bleeding control, it's maybe not surprising those are now becoming more mainstream as we plan casualty care moving forward. So where on the battlefield would we see that? We know that we have people who can do that kind of things, put a Reboa, put in a covered stent, but at an FST or a level two, what can be done with the technology that we have out there? And where would you see a Reboa utilized on the battlefield? And where would you see endovascular techniques used to, let's say, repair a hole in an artery? We'd like to say that our combat casualty care efforts are data-driven. And if we're data-driven, we know that up to 25% of KIAs, those service members who are killed in action, who die from wartime injury before reaching a surgeon, for example, 25% die of potentially preventable death, meaning they did not have a lethal head injury, cardiac injury, or body disruption from explosion. They simply bled to death. And they bleed to death in the first 15 to 60 minutes after injury. So when it comes to Reboa, as challenging as it may be, if Reboa is really going to save lives, it really needs to be in the pre-hospital environment where these patients, that 25%, that margin of lives to save can be gained. Now, that's probably not feasible today because we may not have the devices yet, the best devices to use for Reboa to be used pre-hospital. We haven't trained enough. But I think it's feasible, and if we're committed to saving those about 1,000 U.S. service members during that period of war in Iraq and Afghanistan, if we're committed to saving those lives, then we have to do that. That's just what we do. And so I think Reboa right now is used primarily in the hospital as a resuscitation adjunct for some injuries, kind of in the recess room and in the operating room. But I think as we look forward and are driven by the DOD's casualty care research program and that investment, 
just like other medical technologies that we're driving to improve, Reboa will need to be pre-hospital and closer to the dying patient, bleeding to death, and could otherwise survive. With regards to the more complex endovascular maneuvers, like a covered stent or coil embolization for bleeding, then those would be reserved for roll three, echelon three or four or five hospitals. So many of us have been in operating rooms and seen vascular surgery hybrid operating rooms, which are just completely filled with technology and have somewhat of a heavy footprint. How does that get translated to an expeditionary combat support hospital or some other kind of trauma unit on the battlefield? This is where technology has to advance. And so, for example, the Reboa effort is not new. In fact, resuscitated balloon occlusion of the aorta was applied and reported, written up by Carl Hughes in the Korean War, believe it or not. I was told one time (laughs) when I was younger and probably overly enthusiastic about my accomplishments, I was told by a senior mentor, if you think you've done something new or invented something new, you probably just haven't read enough. It's likely been done before. A Reboa was done and recognized in the Korean War. However, that was very rudimentary balloon technology. And now, post-endovascular technology revolution that happened in the 90s and early 2000s, I think we can engineer Reboa devices that can be used safely in the pre-hospital environment. Engineering meaning smaller devices that can be inflated and used without radiology. One or two of the current balloon Reboa devices are called fluoroscopy-free. In fact, in the indications for use, it says You don't have to use it with fluoroscopy. It can be inflated in the aorta, for example, without x-ray. And I think making devices like that that are smaller and more easily used by emergency physicians or even medics or corpsmen, that's the technology challenge. There's also ways in the Role 3 environment, and I've talked to Wayne about this in the current cadre of vascular surgeons. This is the current challenge is how do you bring a trauma-specific endovascular inventory to the sets, kits, and outfits of the Army, for example, so that the cache of 2030 has an endovascular trauma-specific inventory. And it can be done. I think the key is you don't want to take the endovascular suite that you're referring to, that we become accustomed to, the IR or the endovascular suite from Brook Army Medical Center. You're not trying to take that downrange, but you can take an element of it. You can take a wedge of it that is finite, and you can take that as a trauma-specific inventory and get it as part of the sets, kits, and outfits. That can be done. It's just going to take a little bit of time. It should be done, honestly, because those technologies and those approaches are absolutely life-saving in certain injury scenarios. And I know it's been used successfully on the battlefield. When I think of Reboa, what I'm thinking about is the balloon is placed in the descending thoracic aorta to stop hemorrhage below that level which also leads to malperfusion of the intestines. But what I'm thinking about is this is a bridge to surgical intervention. So doing something to stop the hemorrhage because it is not, as a covered stent might be, is not targeted hemorrhage control and reconstruction. It is just non-targeted hemorrhage control. What do you think is the next step for Reboa to make it more practically usable at a point of injury type scenario? I think we've learned now that the initial Reboa, the balloon matters. I think initially we didn't realize the biomechanics. We were sort of lazy. We used the easiest balloon possible, right? We're like, well, any old balloon will do, right? Give me a Fogarty balloon or a 
compliant balloon that we use for aortic aneurysms. Just give me a balloon, right? But now I think what we're realizing is not surprisingly, the type of the balloon really matters. It's compliance, the development of flow channels as it inflates or deflates. And boy, I think turning engineers and surgeon scientists loose on balloon technology is really exciting. And I think the biggest advance is going to be the development of partial Reboa devices, meaning they're easily controllable, probably semi-compliant balloons, meaning they're not all just floppy, but semi-compliant balloons that the user can control that allow some flow past the balloon. There's hemostasis beyond the balloon, but there's also some element of perfusion, but there's enough occlusion of the aorta that you're able to get afterload and perfusion of the coronaries in the brain and sort of developing balloons that can be used as a dimmer switch instead of an off-on switch, for example, to use that sort of analogy that a balloon can sort of be fine-tuned and is responsive. That's going to be the biggest thing because then you can leave the balloon in for more than 30 minutes or longer because you can have some flow beyond the balloon. The other thing I think that's exciting is applying the engineering field of surface science. What's on the surface of these catheters? And right now, I think we've been relatively lazy. The catheter is made of plastic and we just take for granted that we can give heparin or a blood thinner and leave the catheter in. And we can use heparin in the United States in our civilian practices and prevent blood clots. But are there encodings that we can put on these devices that prevent clot from forming so that we don't have to use heparin? The field of surface science is fascinating. And I think, could we put a coating on these Reboa catheters or arterial sheaths so that clot does not form on them? I think that's also an exciting advance. So I think the field of balloons and engineering the right balloon. And then I think the field of surface science or what are the materials that we can make these catheters out of so we don't have to use heparin and no clot forms on them. I think those are the two major breakthroughs. So a fully trained military vascular surgeon is a sparse resource in today's inventory. What do you think a general surgeon or a trauma surgeon that gets deployed what do they need to know about these advanced vascular surgery techniques when they go downrange? The military is in a unique position here in that we really must enable and engage and encourage our general and trauma surgeons. Because as you're pointing out, there aren't many quote-unquote fellowship-trained vascular surgeons in the military, especially in the just active duty corps. So I think that what they need to know and we need to work as a team. I mean, this is not they and us. It's just we need to make sure that general and trauma surgeons understand basic vascular exposure. How do you expose and get control of a vascular injury in various parts of the body? So I think it's as simple as making sure that we've reviewed and maintained currency and vascular exposure, anatomic exposure, control techniques, and they're kind of different. So you have to expose the artery, but then you have to dissect and control it. And then I think decision-making about the management of the vascular injury, those three categories have to be solid in our general and trauma surgeons. They are, I think, by and large, but I think those are things we need to maintain. And those are all pertaining to open, right? That's open surgery. Because from there, then I think placing a temporary vascular shunt can be done. I think the vessel can be ligated if need be for a life-saving maneuver if needed. Vascular repair can maybe be done, but may not be necessary because the vessel can either be ligated or shunted. 
from an open standpoint, it's a comprehensive understanding of anatomic exposures of these blood vessels, getting to them, how to dissect and control and clamp them or encircle them, and then decision-making about whether or not to ligate, shunt, or repair. From an endovascular standpoint, I think the general and trauma surgeons, we need to help make sure that they understand vascular access techniques, so ultrasound-guided access to the femoral artery, how to expose if there's an access-related complication. Let's say the sheath causes a problem in the femoral artery, how to cut down on and fix the femoral artery. So vascular access. And then I think rudimentary endovascular skills, placing the sheath in the femoral and iliac vessel, and then use of Reboa catheters as an adjunct in some injury patterns and some injured and shocked patients, use of Reboa. And I think those are sort of the core of what is imperative that the military make sure that general and trauma surgeons have in their armamentarium before they go down range. Military vascular surgery has a storied history, as you mentioned earlier, with Drs. DeBakey, Hughes, Rich, and you and your generation of vascular surgeons. You've now passed the torch on to people like myself and my generation of vascular surgeons. What do you think that my generation can do in advancing military and combat expeditionary vascular injury and treatment and prevention in the future? The three biggest challenges for the (laughs) next generation, I hate to count myself out, but the fact of the matter is it probably is going to be up to future surgeons, vascular trauma surgeons to do this. The three biggest things in my mind are, I think, maintaining a currency in open vascular surgery. So how do we train and prepare military surgeons to be facile with the injury patterns they'll see downrange? So that's a big challenge. And so I think how is it that vascular surgeons can lead the way with enabling and making sure our capability is good in open vascular surgery? That's a challenge in and of itself. It may involve working with the American College of Surgeons, civilian trauma centers, multidisciplinary surgical teams at our medical centers, transplant surgeons, for example. I mean, how do we get open vascular exposure and experience for our military surgeons? That's a challenge. I think a second would be understanding and developing endovascular for downrange. I mean, there's no doubt that the arc of progress is bending towards less invasive endovascular techniques. And that arc may bend slightly, but it is bending in that direction. So how do we prepare to have a combat support hospital in 2030 that has basic endovascular tools? Not too many, but not zero. How do you prepare and develop trauma-specific, trauma-relevant endovascular tools for the cache of 2030, for example, 2035, so that we're not deploying with the same vascular sets, kits, and outfits that we did in the Vietnam War and at the beginning of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, how do we codify that in our Echelon 3 hospital? So I think that's a second major challenge. And then training, of course, to that, how do you use those endovascular technologies? And then a third sort of major challenge, I think, for vascular surgeons, sort of the next generation is making sure they remain integrated and an integral part of the trauma system, the joint trauma system. Subspecialty surgeons, we'd refer to them or us as the surgical elitists, right? You'd say, well, the vascular surgeons are only interested in doing vascular surgery. But I think it's really important that we, especially in the military, as vascular surgeons stay part of the trauma system because we understand how to save life and limb. And I think 
making sure that we, especially military surgeons, are not dismissive of the trauma system and just show up when there's a vascular injury. We need to be part of planning casualty movement, planning these hospitals, planning training. How are you going to train Reboa into TCCC without vascular surgeons? You can't, right? You're going to need vascular and endovascular expertise to engage all aspects of the military's trauma system. And I worry, and I see this even in myself, right? We get distracted because we think, well, all we do is vascular blood vessel surgery. And then in that context, we can become unintentionally kind of the surgical elitist where we're, but just call me when there's a vascular injury. And I think that's the challenge for the next generation is avoiding that and really making sure that vascular surgeons are going to be part of the trauma system for the next wars. So as vascular surgery becomes more and more specialized and the training no longer necessarily requires general surgery before doing vascular surgery specialization, how do we make sure that the military vascular surgeon has those skills to take care of non-blood vessel trauma? Well, I think the military has to stand up for this requirement. In certain areas, the military is dependent upon how civilian surgeons train, and we're dependent upon working in civilian settings. But I think there are certain areas where military surgery has to lead and has to be bold and say, we need to account for what you just said. We need to account for the need for at least a good portion of military vascular surgeons who have a comprehensive understanding of resuscitation, trauma systems, care of the trauma patients, blood vessel surgery, yes, but they also need to have a comprehensive knowledge of the injured patient. I think organizations like the American College of Surgeons, the Excelsior Surgical Society, which we don't maybe have time to go into, but I would encourage your listeners to understand the Excelsior Surgical Society as an example which is the military component of the American College of Surgeons. And they have a big voice in the college and probably the American Board of Surgery. And so I think trying to lead and be influential, at least at a national level, so that training programs can be influenced in a favorable way that accounts for all that is needed in military surgery. The civilian surgeons now, all those training paradigms are for subspecialty vascular surgeons. If we follow then we will be pigeonholed and ill-prepared. But I think we have the opportunity, people like Wayne and the cadre of vascular surgeons through the Excelsior, through relationships with the American board or the American college to lead and say, no, we can't just do that for the military. It works for 90% of civilian training programs, but the military is an exception and we need to put a foot down and account for training a more comprehensive surgeon. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. The Excelsior Surgical Society reached out to us to potentially partner with Wardocs to get some of that message out. And I think that's right on is partnering with some of these organizations to make sure that we are covering what needs to be done at the point of injury all the way through resuscitation and from the battlefield to our centers in America. As military providers, physicians, nurses, PAs, we have to always keep that in mind. We've been speaking with retired Air Force Colonel Dr. Todd Rasmussen on Wardock's podcast. Todd, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us, and thank you for your service to the nation. It's been fun to review some of the history and then respond to some of your challenging questions. They've caused me to think a little bit and to be excited about the topic for sure and optimistic about the future of what this holds moving forward. So I've enjoyed it and commend you guys on your good work. Thank you. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. 
War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.